Um, so we are in a series looking at the Gospel of Luke, and we're just preaching through. And obviously, you could spend probably three, four, five years on one book. So you can't preach every bit of every passage. And so today, again, we're going to look at a big chunk, and we're going to focus in really on one main bit. Um, so if you've got a Bible, you want to turn to Luke 11, and we're going to read from verse 14. It's going to come up on the screen. There's a little bit we're going to jump, not because it's not important, but because um, it's a pretty long passage already. And I'm going to read from verse 14 through to verse 54. So Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left the man uh, who had been the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by saying, asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts. You often seem to get that in the Gospels. Jesus goes, yeah, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided itself against itself will fall. If Satan is driving, uh, divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through the arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave birth and nursed you. And he replies, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah, for Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will be the Son of Man be to this generation. And we're going to jump to verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body, When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as a lamp shines its light on you. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. Always a mistake. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as to what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint and rue and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. 
Now, we could carry on. And there's already so much in those verses. So we could, there's a whole bunch of stuff we could pick out. So let me give you a little guided tour. We could pick out what Jesus starts to say about spiritual warfare. And throughout the Gospels, you see again and again, he says, I'm declaring the kingdom. He's the kingdom herald, but he's also the kingdom bringer. With Jesus comes a new day of the kingdom of God's reign on earth. And we know if you read the Bible that the kingdom of God comes in a new way with Jesus, but one day fully it comes when Jesus returns. But something of the kingdom is coming and freedom is coming as well. And Jesus is not only demonstrating that, but is, is teaching about it. So he drives out a demon and then he teaches about what's going on. And there's all sorts of different views on this and I'm not saying that I've got the right view. Okay, but he then goes on to do a very famous bit of teaching about the strong man. Now we could teach about that. Some people will argue that in spiritual warfare, and in the West we have a bit of a problem with spiritual warfare because we like to think it's not really there, but in the Bible it's very clear that it is there, and it's very evident that it's there. Some people will say, look, when you pray for someone, if there's a demonic power, you have to bind the strong man every time. Whereas other scholars, who I'm far more convinced by, would say, Jesus is coming, and his death and resurrection is the binding of the strong man. Jesus has won the victory already. So the strong man is already bound, as in Satan. So the the war has been won, okay? But there are still battles to fight where demonic powers need to be cast out, and that is what Jesus is doing. So we could talk all about that. We could talk about the fact that he does a remarkable miracle, but actually the reaction was amazement, and then people started going, started criticizing and moaning about what he's just done. <laughs> and it is very possible for remarkable miracles to happen and be in the midst of an amazing miracle and still adopt an attitude which is not particularly positive. And you see that throughout the Bible where God does something remarkable and people don't like it. Yeah, They kind of ask for a sign. They want a sign, but really the sign is never the thing that's going to convince them. So we could pick one of those. Well, we could pick up like the verse, verse 23, where he says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And again, you get, this, you get this thing with Jesus where he goes, in the end, you cannot have a foot in both camps. You are either with me and you've surrendered your life to me or you haven't. And we, like, we live in a world in the West, especially where people want to, you know, want to have a foot in both camps. We want to kind of like, yeah, Jesus, I'll follow you here, but not here. I'll follow you in these parts of my life. You can be my consultant about these issues. You can be my get out of jail card when I need, uh, you know, a, a problem fixing but the rest of this part of my life, I will keep under my own lordship. And Jesus says, no, no, if you're not with me, you're against me. You have to be with me, fully surrendered. So we could pick, there's so many things in there. But I want to actually focus in on a verse, verse 27, verse 28, which is really easy to miss, but kind of like stood out for me. Um, and basically what happens is Jesus drives this demon out, people start kind of like questioning, how is he doing this, really? Is he kind of like, is he doing it by the power of Satan? Is that how he's doing it? And then this woman shouts out. He gets heckled. Imagine ever being heckled in church. I don't know if you've ever heard people heckling in church. Sarah, have you ever heard people heckling in church? May have heard that, okay. I have experienced that a few times, occasionally from my own wife, okay? But in this passage, Jesus gets heckled, right? Do you know what I mean by heckled? People is shouting out as he's speaking. And this is what she says. Blessed is the mother, blessed is your mum, basically, who gave you birth and nursed you. And Jesus, 
doesn't ignore her. He says, no, no, no. Actually, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So she heckles him like, your mum is so fortunate. Blessed is her. And he goes, no, blessed are you if you hear my words and you do something about them. Now, it's interesting. I, I uh, listen to one or two different podcasts. And I listen to podcasts quite frequently by a guy called Patrick Lencioni. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Patrick Lencioni. Anybody, any show of science? Okay, one or two. He's a Christian guy. He's an American. But he works in the world of kind of corporate business. And it's all about organizational health. How do you build a team structure within a business which is healthy? And if you do that, he says, basically, the argument is you will help make your whole business healthy. And the most recent talk I, sp- I listened to with him was he talked about the danger of fads and new ideas and quick fixes in business. And he said this, he said, most things in life come down to pretty, some pretty basic things that we do over time that amount to simple disciplines. There is no silver bullet. It really is all about going back to the fundamentals. And he's basically arguing that for most healthy, prosperous businesses are built on basically doing fundamental things really well again and again and again and again. Consistency rather than an intense burst of something and then nothing. And I thought, that's interesting. I can totally see how that works. I can see how that works in church. But actually, we also see that working in, our, in, a, in a lot of our lives. So you think about your physical health and your physical bodies. If you want to get healthy and fit, it's no good just doing three days of intense exercise and then going back to gorging on croissants at church, right? Because nothing changes. Nothing cha- what changes is if you commit to a regular, simple approach to being healthy about exercise and eating. Well, that's how it works. I have a, a guy that Sarah and I knew back in London... He lived about a couple of roads down from us. It always made me laugh. He was a, he had a really nice guy, but he, and he, he had a bit of money, and he liked cycling. And um, for his 40th birthday, he bought a very, very, very expensive new bike. And he was a slightly overweight guy, if I can just put, tell you that as well. So, he, I mean, I don't know how much he spent, but, I mean, tens of thousands of pounds on this bike. Okay, so it was an incredibly, like, you could lift this bike up just with one finger. So it was, like, incredible. And one of his mates said to him, why didn't you lose a couple of kgs and save yourself about 20 grand? Because he just, he hadn't committed to the basically simple, he wanted to ride a very fast light bike without really doing any real exercise at all. And it cost him tens of thousands of pounds. Basically, often when it comes to our spiritual life and our growth as a believer, it is very often down to doing the simple things the basic things and putting them in place and living them throughout our life. And so this woman says, blessed is your mother who gave birth to you. And Jesus goes, no, blessed are you if you hear what I say and you do something about them. And if you read through the Gospels, Jesus keeps saying this same thing again and again and again and again. If you want to live a fruitful life, if you want to live a life that stands through the storms, if you want your life to kind of bear fruit in all sorts of ways, he says, basically, there are some fundamental things you need to get in place in your life, and you need to commit to these things. So right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, you'll know that's the most famous passage of sermons that Jesus ever preaches. Some people argue it's a series of sermons that have been put together. Some people argue it's one sermon. But it's the most famous uh, teaching Jesus ever does on the kingdom. And at the end of that teaching, he tells the story about the two builders. 
One builds on rock, one builds on sand. Everybody knows this story, right? Everybody sang the song, learned it in, in Sunday school if you went to kids' church when you were a kid. Everybody knows the story, and yet Jesus is going, it is very possible to know everything about my teaching and to never build your life on it. He's saying, no, no, no. If you want to live a life, and the word blessed in the Bible basically means happy, contented, deeply satisfied. You have to hear my words, and you have to do something about it. It's the simple thing. In James, it says this. I love this verse. Just basically because it's so possible to do this. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror. Oh, it doesn't have the next verse. And immediately forgets what they look like. If you read it on, that's what it says. So you look at yourself in the mirror, you walk away, and you forgot what you look like. And that's what he's saying. It's very possible to hear God's word, to listen to his word, and go, yeah, that's okay, but I'm going to do it my way. Thanks. Jesus tells another story, doesn't he? Luke 8, he tells the story of the sower and the seed. Anybody know this story? Okay. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell on the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground. And when it came, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. And when he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So much of our life pivots on the real fundamental basic thing. Am I going to do anything with what he says to me? What is the difference, Jesus says, about a life that prevails and stands through the storm? And storms in that story in Matthew comes to both the houses, whether it's built on sand or rock. Storms are coming. We live in a broken world. Sadly, storms come. What's the difference between prevailing and not prevailing? Standing and not standing. What's the difference between fruitfulness in Luke 8 and a lack of fruitfulness? It's all about, will I be receptive to what he says and do something about it? The story Jesus, Sarah, talked about in the chapter before, about Mary and Martha. Okay, Martha, Martha, you are concerned about so many things, but Mary has chosen what is better. One thing is needed. And as you know, we live in the West, in the privileged world of many things. Many options, many choices. Just go to a supermarket, you'll see them. Thousands of possibilities of shampoo you can buy. Many, many things, many possible forms of entertainment, many things, many responsibilities, many options, many. And Jesus is going, you know, amongst all the many things, one thing ultimately is needed. And Mary has chosen what's better. She's adopted the posture of a disciple. She's, take, she's, she's, she's putting me central and first. Sit at my feet, learn from me. It's the simple thing, which is very easy to miss. I heard Tim Keller once speak, and he basically said, it's very possible to believe God, but not to believe him. You believe in God, but we don't believe him. <laughs> I believe he's real, but I don't really believe what he's saying. I'm going to trust my own voice more than his voice. And Jesus keeps saying, if you want your life to be one of deep contentment, 
and flourishing. It doesn't mean everything goes well, but one, probably the most important thing is sit at the feet and make me the central person of your heart. Put me first. Surrender to me. Proverbs 4, 23, same thing. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. One place, one position in your heart, above everything else, he's this, you know, that passage says is guard your heart. Keep it. Protect it. Make it absolutely critical who is first in your life because everything flows what's from what's coming inside out. So it's incredibly simple, right? We all understand it. It's not intellectually challenging to get it. We understand it. And yet, it is incredibly challenging, I think, to live it out, right? So it's not difficult to understand, but it's actually quite difficult to live out. And I think the reason, or at least part of the reason for that, is because we are called to live a life of surrender and dependence. Jesus says, now surrender your life. Depend on me. Trust in my words. Blessed are you if you hear my words and you do something, you put, make me Lord of your life. So we are called to live a life of surrender and dependence, but we are addicted to a life of independence and listening to our own voices. That's why we find it so hard. Because we're called to surrender and listen to him, but we're kind of addicted to being independent and listening to ourselves. So some of you will know, there's the next passage in, in Luke 12, Jesus tells a story about a man who builds bigger and bigger barns. And basically the summary of the story is he keeps, he's got loads of stuff anyway, he's got more than he can possibly need, but he keeps going, oh, I'm going to build a bigger barn and a bigger barn. And this is what it says. He says to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he says, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus says, you're a fool. This very night, your life will be taken from you. But what's really interesting in the story, the only person's voice you hear is his own. Okay, you read it through. It's interesting. He says, he thought to himself, and then he said, then I'll say to myself. So there is only one voice in his story, and it's his own. He's telling himself, do this. He's thinking about himself. This is what I'm good. He thinks about himself. He listens to himself. He speaks to himself. There is no other life, or there is no other voice into his life, and therefore his life is all about him. And Jesus says, he's a fool. And if you combine a self-oriented life with a belief in God, so I believe in God, but basically my life is all about me. If you put those two things together, basically what you create often is a very self-oriented faith, which is all about the rules I need to keep. Because if I keep all the rules, I will effectively save myself. So if you combine a self-oriented life well, I only listen to myself with some kind of faith. I believe in God. And you put those two things together, what you end up with is basically legalism. Religious legalism. Because we tend to believe that somehow my behavior, somehow my apparent righteousness, somehow my godliness, will somehow make God bless us, like us, be kind to us. 
And that is what Jesus goes on to address, at least in part, in the rest of this passage, okay? Because he gets into some stuff, particularly with the Pharisees. He says to this woman, blessed are you, right? And then six times in the rest of the chapter, he says, woe to you. You know, like grief to you, sadness to you. So contentment, like kind of a depth of satisfaction. Jesus says, blessed are you. You will experience satisfaction. But then he says, woe to you, six times. And I'm going to pick out just two of the six, okay? But six times he says it. And the first one he says is this. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you have neglected love and justice, but you give a tenth of everything you have. Okay? Now, you, you read that story and basically kind of go, but they, they give really well. Like, they have going to the QR code every week, right? And they give generously. They give a tenth of their income, not just their money. They do it right down right down to their herbs, anything they grow in their garden. So they are absolutely on it when it comes to being to giving. So on the surface, you kind of go, isn't that, that's a pretty good thing, right? Because the Bible talks about us giving generously. And they give generously. And Jesus says, woe to you. It's like, well, what's, what is that all about? Well, what it's all about is Jesus says, woe to you because you give a tenth but you've forgotten about love and you've forgotten all about justice. In other words, your giving is a symptom of you trying to self-save yourself. You think if you obey the rules, you think if you give even down to the last little detail, if you, you think that your righteousness will somehow qualify you. In other words, he accuses them of effectively trying to bribe God. They're trying to buy him by their giving. It's interesting, sometimes righteousness goes wrong is pretty awful. Jesus keeps calling out righteousness that's gone wrong. So he says, you give a tenth, but you've neglected justice, you've neglected love. Now Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't give. Actually, he says you should have, you should have given attention to loving and justice and still given as well. So he doesn't give, he doesn't let any of us off the hook when it comes to how we handle our money. He just says, the motivation as to why we give is critical. We don't give to qualify ourselves. We are only qualified because he has bought us. We never buy him. He has bought us, adopted a sonship. Jesus lays down his life. He, he takes what is ours and he gives us what is his. That's the way the transaction works. And out of that place we give, because which is a way of saying, well, I trust you. But we don't give ever, ever, ever to force God's hand to bless us. Jesus is saying, woe to you if you think that's what money is about. That's not how it works. And he, and he calls them out. He goes, you're basically like a cup. You're like, can I grab, grab that cup? He basically says, you're like a cup, and you're really interested in what it looks like on the outside. And yet you leave the inside completely dirty and full of greed. That's, that's, and he says, no, no, life is always inside out. Guard your heart because it is the wellspring. So righteousness gone wrong is an attention to, if I do all these things, God will be kind to me, right? If I, if I get all the disciplines right, and he's saying, no, 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 blessed are you if you understand you hear his word, you allow it to change the affections of your heart and therefore the decisions of your life. So it affects what we do with our money. 
what we do with our careers, what we do in our relationships, what we do with our bodies. Jesus says, I want to be Lord of all of it. You're either with me or you're not. So he calls them out on the money thing because basically he's saying to the Pharisees, you're self-saving. You are trying to save yourselves by the, by the standards of your godliness and it doesn't work. In fact, it's, you're like further away. That's the first thing he goes. And then he goes to the second one. He goes, woe to you. He said, because you basically want the best seats in the house. Woe to you because you come to the synagogue and you want the best seats. You like people saying hi to you. That's what you're all about. You want all that. Now, I think it's pretty normal to like a nice seat occasionally. I think it's pretty normal to want people to say hi to you. I think it's pretty normal. You want people to see you and be seen. And actually, the Bible is full of the importance of being seen and valued. Jesus sees and values people that no one else will see. Okay, so it's not about not needing to be loved and valued and seen. But Jesus is saying, you cannot self-save and neither can other people save you either. If you look to people's attention, their, their affirmation, their recon- if you look to their recognition of you as a way of somehow fixing the need within you to feel loved, you will miss it totally. Because their attention and their recognition and their valuing of you is never going to be sufficient to fix the deepest needs of your heart. Yeah? For some of us, we're, we can be addicted to that. We, want, we, we, we bow down to the idol of somebody else's smiley face. We desperately need their affirmation in a way that actually is incredibly unhealthy for us because then that is never meant to meet that deepest need in our hearts. That's why preaching and leading worship in churches is so dangerous or any kind of ministry, because it feeds sometimes this very unhealthy thing in us where we need people's affirmation. And Jesus is saying, woe to you if you live in such a way that you always want the best seats, you want a profile, you want the platform, and you need people's smile and affirmation. Because those things are never meant, designed to meet the deepest needs of your heart. Jeremiah 2 has this pretty remarkable phrase uh, verse says this my people have committed two sins they have forsaken me the spring of living water and have dug their own systems broken systems that cannot hold water what he's basically saying is is that we are all searching all the time and all the world is searching all the time for something that will bring deep satisfaction and soul satisfaction and you're saying you have to be very careful where you look they're looking for the right things but in all the wrong places in other words there is only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of our life that's why when Jesus, when sarah read out you know come to me all of you are thirsty jesus is saying the only person ultimately who will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul is me. The only place you get living water is me. The only place, person who is the bread of life is me. And so often we search and search, maybe if I get a, a, a better career, maybe if I earn more money, maybe if, maybe if, maybe if. And Jesus says, no, no, you're searching in all the wrong places. Blessed are you if you hear my words and you do something about it. In fact, he says, Jesus says to the, to the Pharisees, 
if you live your life like this, looking for everybody else's affirmation all the time, and it's pretty strong, he says, your lives are like unmarked graves. It's like, whoa. I was thinking about, what is that like? That means no one will know who you are, ultimately. You're looking in all the wrong places. I mean, it's pretty strong words, right? Woe to you, woe to you. Don't live like that. Don't, don't be, don't kind of catch that lie. Don't believe it. It's not true. It won't generate in you what your heart most needs. Blessed are you if you hear my words and do something about it. So he's basically saying to them, you cannot self-save. No amount of your own righteousness will ever save you. You cannot buy God by being very, very... You'll never be good enough. You cannot do it. And neither can other people's affirmation save you either. Neither can they. But only one can save, and that's him. Blessed are you when you hear my words and put them into practice. In other words, Jesus is saying, do what Mary does. Take the posture of a disciple, put me first, and trust me. And sometimes that means we have to make very radical decisions, big decisions. Sometimes it impacts who we date, it impacts where we live, it impacts what job we go for, it impacts us whether we move or not. But most of the time, it just impacts lots and lots and lots and lots of small decisions, which build up to being one very big decision in terms of the direction of your life. So, I want us to have a moment now where we can respond to him and 